A few years ago in 2018 in China, uh, they tried this pilot program where motorists could receive forgiveness for their moving violations and the fines that accompany those if they would confess on social media. Did you hear about this? So the catch was you must post your um, confession and you must get 20 or more likes in order for it to be an official pardon of the violation and the charges. If it was successful in the program, they were going to try it in other parts. I'm not sure how, how all that went, but they started with a network that was called Weibo or Weibo. I don't know if that's a... It's kind of like our, our Twitter, I think. And at least 10 different people posted their confessions um, their driving mishaps, and then the uh, traffic police would repost that on uh, their official account to show you. So one guy actually says, I was seized by a traffic police when driving my scooter in the wrong direction <laughs> in an intersection. I have learned it was wrong after education by the traffic police officer. I would like to remind internet users to learn from my lesson and not to think it was okay to commit mistakes when driving a scooter. I don't know how sincere that was, but um, he at least admitted it. Anyway, the representative stressed that the program was only for minor traffic offenses involving pedestrians, bicycles, and scooters since verbal warnings for these violations didn't serve as much of a deterrent. Hmm, verbal warnings didn't serve as a deterrent. Hard, hard to believe, huh, that people wouldn't listen. So, I don't know about y'all, but it, I would pay if I could get out of my ticket, wouldn't you? I mean, I would post it on social media and say, yeah, I was speeding, and it was wrong, and I shouldn't have done it if I wouldn't have to pay the ticket. Would y'all do that? I would. You know, confession does something for us, doesn't it? But I don't think that's exactly what confession is supposed to be, about, just getting out of something. Have you ever been witness to someone confessing something where it really was heartfelt and it started a change in them or in a situation or in a relationship? There's something powerful about hearing someone confess. Sometimes it can be freeing for the person who's doing the confession. They are getting this off of their chest. They're getting this out of their life. It's been hidden. It's been concealed. And now it's coming out in the open. And that can be freeing for the person. But also it can be freeing or helpful to someone who needs to bring closure to something. Where it's been hidden or kept in the dark for such a long time. But now it's been confessed and we can move forward. And confession was part of the worship services. It was part of the festivals and feasts that the Israelites, as we see in the Old Testament, that was a part of it. Confession was a part of that. They needed to talk to God. They needed to confess their sins. They needed to confess who God was and who they were in that relationship. And last week we saw how the people were moving in a direction, as we've been going through Nehemiah, they were moving in a direction of restoration with God after their time of exile. So, if you're wondering what I'm referring to of those people, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah and uh, his writings there about uh, uh, how he went to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. And really, it was more than just a construction project. It was a relationship uh, restoration project, if you will, of the nation of, of Israel. And so he was giving them a, a new vision. And so we've been talking about reconstructing our vision and interestingly, in Nehemiah's reading about the restoring of walls and restoring the relationship with God, we saw last week where there was this incredible worship service where after they had built the wall in 52 days, they all kind of went, 
That was amazing. How, how did we do that? Well, we did that with God's help. This is a sign that we are getting back connected with the God that we've forsaken and we've been in exile for so long. But this couldn't have happened without him. So they called to Ezra, who was the high priest, and said, bring out the Bible. Bring out the what we call the Bible, but what did those days, it was the law, the law of Moses. They didn't have the whole Bible yet, but they had the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, if you will, from Genesis basically to Leviticus and all those laws that were in there. And as they started reading them, the people were very moved. And, and we noticed that they um, actually got very emotional and there was some weeping as part of that process. But it was a process. And uh, activities and issues had twists and turns. And um, it led them to a point of coming back to God. We know when we first started this series, Nehemiah had a vision from God. And with that vision, he went to Jerusalem with this story about how the king, he had shared that vision with him. And he says, go ahead. And he gave him the resources and he gave him all that he needed. And when he came and told the people that, it connected with them. Wow, God must be doing something. And then, of course, the construction of the wall started to begin and people started saying, God's doing something powerful here. And then drama happens, as it always does. I don't know about y'all, if it's drama, if you've ever tried to restore a house, there's going to be drama, isn't there? You're going to get into the project and you're going to go, I didn't know all that was rotten behind that wall. I didn't know under the subfloor there was all this rotten termite and all this kind of stuff. If you've ever tried to restore a car, you get into it and you go, oh, I thought we could salvage the engine, but no, it's blown too. And you have all these dramas that ensue when you're trying to restore something. And the same thing happens with relationships, doesn't it? We're going to restore this relationship, but man, there's a lot of back stuff in trying to restore that relationship. There's a lot of baggage in there that we have to dig through, and it takes time. But that stuff happened in this restoration process of these walls and this relationship we noticed there was internal things that were happening where Nehemiah had to step in and address that and go, hey, what's going on here? And uh, then there were things externally where people were seeing this restoration process from the outside. It says, we don't like that. We don't want Israel to be restored. And so there was the drama. But we know that Nehemiah addressed all of that drama head on. He didn't just let it fester. He addressed it head on and each time with what we called moral authority. That means he didn't just say, hey, it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't, we should do this. We should do that. No, he said, this is the way it should be. Here are the values I have. Here are the convictions we should have as a people. And we're not just going to talk about those things. We're actually going to live those out. We're going to really do those things. And so him as the governor, as the leader, he says, we're not going to treat people like that. And he didn't treat people like that. So he had moral authority to take on those dramas. And as we know and we've read about, the walls after laying in ruins for over 100 years were rebuilt in 52 days. And the people assemble and they ask for God's word to be read and have this big worship service and start those festivals again that they had kind of let go by the wayside. And as they did... It was a, a time to celebrate and to worship. And I think it's really important for us to see as we go through Nehemiah that this vision did not start with him going into Jerusalem and go, y'all need to start worshiping. You need to start worshiping God. He didn't come here to do that. Because if he had done that, it might have been some resentment. It may not have been the place to start. But he started with something very different. He started with a picture, a vision of cleaning up these walls that are laying down all around us. Those are a symbol of who we are. We're a broken down people. We're broken down. The rest of the world's looking at who we used to be and see who we are now. That's a symbol of being broken. So he painted them a picture of the future, as we've talked about, that produced passion in them. And they got around this symbol. 
And that symbol as was really these, these walls. John Acuff, in his new book called Soundtracks, talks about symbols. And we all know what symbols are. If you took out your phone right now, you've got a bunch of apps on your phone. And each one of those is what? A symbol that you can remember. And you look for the symbol that coordinates with that app so that you can order pizza or do whatever it is you, you have to do. And those uh, symbols, they're simple, they're, they're personal, and they're visible when you think about symbols, all of those things. And so when we think about the symbol that was going on for Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, it was the wall or the walls around Jerusalem. Those were a symbol. Those walls were simple. They were stone and mortar. People had seen stone and mortar for years. Simple everyday products or natural resources that people have been using for centuries to build walls and things around them. And everyone was aware of those. They had seen walls. They saw the value of walls. They saw saw them in the city, they saw them in their homes, they saw them in the marketplace and places of business. They were simple, but they did serve a purpose. And they were personal. This is my town. This is the wall in my town. This is my people, my family, my nation. It's my street, my neighborhood. It's the wall in front of my house. So those walls became very personal. If you remember, Nehemiah says, I want you to work on the walls, restoring the walls in front of your house because you'll take more pride in it if you recognize it's in front of your house because you're going to see it every day. So those walls were simple, they were personal, and they were visible. People saw the walls every day as they walked in and out of the city or in and out of their house. Inside and outside of Jerusalem, walls tell a story, don't they? And these certainly did. Is it strong and secure or broken down and unusable? Well, at the time, those walls were broken down and unusable. It said a story about Israel. They've broken relationship with their God, so now their city is in ruins. Those walls told a visible story. Was it a confident and joyful city or an insecure and depressed city and people? So the walls represented something more than the Israelites really wanted to understand even before the exile. They believed because they had walls in Jerusalem and they were God's people that God was going to say, uh, we'll always protect you because you're my people. But God goes, wait a minute, we have a covenant. That means we have an agreement. We have talked about this. There are things that I'm going to do for you, but in relationship, there's things that you're going to do in this relationship too. There's give and there's take. And they were doing all the taking and God finally backed off and says, you're on your own now. And then they saw what happened, but they didn't really believe that till it actually happened. <clears throat> so the walls represented more than they thought. God had called Israel, you're to be my representatives in the rest of the world. People need to look at you and see who I am, see my character, see the relationship that we have. What does that look like? That's what it was supposed to happen. They were to be holy, set apart. And in order to be that, they needed clear expectations, clear guidelines on what God's character was like, what his expectations were. And God gave them that with really, really uh, specific clarity in the covenant he made starting with Abraham and then with the laws of Moses. It was very clear. There was all kinds of rules for everything. So they knew what God's expectations were. But again, God was clear also on who they were to be. Their identity was in him. And so they was very clear on that. But we're going to read, and it's going to take me a while to get there. Some of y'all are going to, in just a minute, you're going to go, why is he talking about all that other stuff? I thought we were in Nehemiah, but I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But as we read from today's text in Nehemiah, and we will get there, um, it's obvious even after 100 years that the people knew about the covenant. Even though they had gotten away from it, they knew about the covenant. They had been told 
from their parents and their grandparents and their great, 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 great parents all the way down. This was part of the culture of Israel. We're God's people. We have a covenant with God, but it had gotten out of sorts and that relationship was hurt. And that's what happened. That's why the exile. So they had been reminded last week as we saw this incredible worship service where Ezra came and read the laws of the covenant. And as a part of this festival, it reminded them of their past of their parents telling them these things, their grandparents telling them these things, and it reminded them of who they were supposed to be. It convicted them, and it seems to have inspired them to confess and to continue moving forward in that restoration process with let's start to become who we're supposed to be again because we haven't been, and they recognize that. So a wall can represent security from something, can't it? A wall can represent keeping something that's desirable to us in and keeping something that's not desirable to us out. We understand that. We have walls in our homes. Okay, We have a fence in a lot of our backyard because we want to keep the dogs and the kids in the yard. And we don't want other kids and dogs in our yard unless they're invited, right? That's how that's supposed to be. So we understand walls. Sometimes it can be privacy from something. What happens in these walls is private. I don't need everybody to know what's going on behind this wall. Separation from something. I need to be separated while I'm in these walls from doing something else. It can represent focus on something. While I'm in the walls of my office, I'm supposed to be focused on something in my office that I'm doing. And so I have walls to separate that. We all understand that. We have walls in here this morning, we have walls that separate us in the worship area so that we are noticing that these walls separate us from things that are going on out there to focus us on what God wants us to hear. So rebuilding the walls and securing their city and identity was representation or a symbol not only of walls but of their hearts. And this is where I want to get into a little setup for our, our scripture today. Just like the city of Jerusalem needed security and accountability with walls that weren't broken down so that not just any person or group could come in there and go, this is Jerusalem? Well, I don't like that. That's not how I look at things. That's not how I look at the world. I'm going to change Jerusalem. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're not one of us. Who are you to come in and change who we are? But that's exactly what had happened. People were coming in from different cultures that worshipped other gods, and they were coming in there, and they were changing people's hearts in Jerusalem. Their hearts needed guarding as well. And I want you to hear something very important today as we look at this. When we let just anyone into our hearts or just any information into our minds and our hearts, or just any story, or, or any teaching, or any images into our eyes and into our mind and into our heart, it has effect on us, doesn't it? It affects us spiritually. It affects us mentally, emotionally, and sometimes even physically. And in our culture, y'all, this was a culture where there was a lot of images, a lot of things that were coming into their hearts, and this is what turned them away from God. The same thing is happening in our culture, y'all. We've got a lot of images that are coming in through our computers and our phones. And I say this to young people, and I'm stressing this because I love you, not because I'm trying to pick on you. And it's not just young people, it's a lot of us. We have so many images coming in our phones every day. And y'all, it just boggles our minds, all the images and things we're trying to process in our brains. And young people, your brains are still functioning. They're trying to be formed into what they're supposed to be. And when you have all these images coming in, 400 TikToks today, or all these other things, or movies, or binge watching this, and all, blah, all of that's in your mind, whether you like it or not, because you've seen it. It's gone in through your eyes, into your mind, and it goes into your heart. And sometimes our hearts are not guarded. And things are going in there that really shouldn't go in there. And they can hurt us. I want you to listen. 
Israel had done this. They had allowed not just people into their city, but these people had belief systems, and they had different value systems, and they worked on and changed, and in some cases captured the hearts of the Israelites, and their hearts were led astray from God. And God said, I told you this when we made the covenant, to guard your heart so this wouldn't happen, because I knew this was going to happen. I didn't want us to be separated, but it's happened. And it was a cumulative effect it didn't happen in just a short time. It was, you know, like the, the frog slowly getting in the warm water and you keep turning up the heat till you finally the, the frog boils to death. He doesn't feel it because it's a cumulative thing of the heat being slowly turned up, but ultimately it happens. Listen to what Solomon said in a Proverbs chapter 4. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ears to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and help to one's whole body. Listen to this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Let me read that again. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That wisdom came from the most powerful man in the world at the time, King Solomon. He was the richest, the most powerful man in the whole world at that time. He had kingdoms everywhere. Everybody in the world wanted to come and hear wisdom from Solomon, see all the things he had built, see all the things that he had done, because they knew that he was connected to his God, and God had blessed him. And they came from all over the world to say, who is this guy whose God has blessed him like this, that has all this power and all these things? He wrote that, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. But guess what happened to Solomon himself? He should have listened to his own advice. In 1 Kings chapter 11, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts to other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Listen to this. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Wow, what a shocker. A thousand women you're trying to have relationships with, and they led you astray. I mean, we have problems with one person in a relationship, don't we? Can you imagine a thousand? And this is what was happening. So listen to what the scripture goes on to say. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart to other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed the Ashtorah, uh, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Do you see how easy... It is for someone to let their guard down, to open their heart up and think to things and people. And those things and people can sometimes lead us astray. And notice the mention of the heart of David, Solomon's father. Now, David had a major vision reconstruction in his own life. One day he was out on his deck or his patio or his pavilion. He's looking down and he sees Bathsheba. A lot of us know that story. And he goes, wow, who is that? Oh, that's the wife of Uriah. Yeah, I want her to come here. Did you hear what we said, David? It's the wife of your... I know, I want her to come in. So anyway, things happened. A baby came. He killed, had her husband killed. And ultimately, he rationalized his values and convictions because he wanted something. He wasn't doing what God had told him. He let something into his heart and didn't guard his heart. 
But David was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And in Psalm 51, David wrote a specific psalm about his confession of what he had done. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, so justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's a powerful confession from the most powerful man in the world at that time. He was confessing his personal sin and how it had had effects on him and his relationship with God. And David's vision got reconstructed back to where it should be after this. There were some horrible consequences as a result of this that went on for years. But confession is part of being fully devoted to God and his vision for our lives. Solomon had all these marriages for all kinds of reasons. I'm sure some of them he really loved these women. But I think a lot of it was lust. And a lot of it in these days was treaties and arrangements. If I will marry this woman, then we'll have peace in the region. And so he rationalized, I could marry all these women to keep the peace in the region so that we won't have all these wars. But his wives, every one of them, they had feelings, didn't they? They had a belief system. They had things in their lives, values and things that they believed. And as you have relationship with people, you can't help but know these things. And they have effect on you, And his vision was reconstructed by his wives turning his hearts after those gods. And his vision was different than what God had always intended for him as the king and the leader of Israel. And this ultimately led to the downfall of Israel and the splitting right after his reign into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And they warred against each other for years and years. And ultimately the northern kingdom was taken over by enemies. And then as we know, Babylon came in and destroyed the southern kingdom and destroyed Jerusalem. This was all started because he didn't guard his heart. And all this is has led them to a time of exile that they're now coming out of. Like, well, gosh, are you ever going to get to Nehemiah? All this about David and Solomon? But you see where this leads. And I say all this, y'all, not to just give you a history lesson, but to, for us to understand what is happening in, in any culture, in any part of history, we have to be aware of it and guard our hearts, don't we? And if we're not constantly confessing and letting God know, I'm, I'm not having to guard my heart this week. I let some stuff in and, and it's affecting me then it's going to affect us in a lot of different ways. So let's listen, if we could, to this time of exile. They've been in this time of exile. Now they're reflecting ultimately, and they're confessing and repentance, which is leading their hearts back to God. But listen in chapter 9. We're going to have that. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 3, 
if we can get that. There it is. And I'm just going to read the first three and listen to how the Israelites in this worship service are confessing. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law uh, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. That's a lot of time focusing on that. Now, I'm going to skip from verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 through thirty. Uh, one are very important. I'm not saying they're not, but basically it's a history lesson in the middle of this, and you can go back and read it. I would encourage you to do that. It's a history lesson of basically them saying, we know our history. We know how we got here. The reason we went to exile is because they went all the way back to Abraham and to Moses, and they talked about David and Solomon and go, that's how we got here. We did turn away from God. We did let our hearts not be guarded and it affected us, not as only as personal, individual people, but as a nation. And that's how it happens. So then in verse 32, after they've gone through that history of how we've gotten here, listen to their confession. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors, and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes that you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So you see that confession, it's personal. They realized, we know how we got here now. It didn't happen by accident. You see how the rebuilding of the walls was symbolic for them and the rebuilding of their hearts and the rebuilding of their vision as a nation and a people. It was all connected. They were ready to move forward. Confession was a part of that moving forward. We're not going to hide this any longer. We're not going to ignore it any longer. We're going to get it out in the open. We're confessing it. And that's a part of this vision reconstruction back to God's heart and the vision that he wants to take place through us as his people. So I say all that to say, what does this mean for us in 2021? What did 2020 mean? It was an exile of sorts, wasn't it? A lot of us were exiled. Some of us still are in a lot of ways. What things have we reflected on in our lives during that time and go, why is this happening? Does this have anything to do with our hearts and how we've acted in our lives, in our country? When I was reading, I was like, man, the country with all this resources, how have we behaved as God's people? Have we ignored God? What things, what people and values have we let into our hearts, not guarding it, and it's had this cumulative effect on us? Maybe we 
have some confessing to do individually and as a church and as a nation. That maybe that has kept us from God because we didn't guard our hearts. And maybe we have some vision for the present. Maybe we have some walls that need to be rebuilt around our hearts to re-guard our hearts and say, God, I'm not going to let all that junk in. I need to be more aware of that. Maybe we have a vision for the present and the future that needs to be reconstructed to restore our relationship with God. A lot of y'all may know the name Max Licato. He's a great writer and preacher and teacher. And in one of his books several years ago, In the Grip of Grace, he wrote this, Confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks and pulling up the stumps. He knows that seed grows better if the land is prepared. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. There is a rock of greed over here, Father, and I can't budge it. And that tree of guilt near the fence, its roots are long and deep. And may I show you some dry soil too crusty for seed? God's seed grows better if the soil of the heart is cleared. And this confession is also something that needs to happen among our personal relationships with one another. Not just with God, but in our personal relationships with one another. Guarding our hearts while encouraging and holding others accountable to guarding theirs. That can be hard sometimes, can it? And I'm not talking about um, gossipy uh, prayer requests. You know what I'm saying? Hey, I heard so-and-so is going through a struggle. We need to pray for them just so you can get the gossip out. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people in your life who are your friends who you say, I need to talk to you about something. And being able to share that with someone, that they listen to you and they know you're like a steel trap. It's not going to go any further, but you're going to walk through that. Because I haven't been guarding my heart and this is what happened. And you, you listen to them and you pray with them and you try to walk them through that. We need friends like that, don't we? John Ortberg says, one of the most important moments in my spiritual life is when I sat down with a longtime friend and I said to that friend, I don't want to have any secrets anymore between us. I told him everything I was most ashamed of. I told him about my jealousies. I told him about my cowardice, how I hurt my wife with my anger. I told him about my history with money and my history with sex. I told him about my deceit and regrets that keep me up at night. I felt vulnerable because I was afraid that I was going to lose connection with my friends. Much to my surprise, he didn't even look away. I'll never forget his next words. John, I have never loved you more than I love you right now. The very truth, John said, about me that I thought would drive him away because of a, 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 it actually became a bond that actually drew us closer together. And then he went on to speak with me about his secrets that he had been carrying. And he says, if I keep part of my life a secret from you, you may tell me that you love me, but inside I think that you really can't love me and you would not love me if you knew the whole truth about me. I can only receive love from you to the extent that I am known by you. Man, do we need friends like that? That will know everything about us but still love us and walk us through and help us guard our hearts. We have a God that wants to have a personal relationship. And here's the deal, y'all. He knows everything about us. There's nothing we can hide or keep in the dark from. He knows it and he loves us anyway and he wants to restore us. And he came and lived among us in the form of Jesus so that he could restore us. And he said in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. So today, maybe there's somebody here today who needs to confess that you've not guarded your heart. 
And as a result, there are some broken walls in your life that need rebuilding, that need reconstructing. And God wants to do that. Jesus died so that we can reconstruct our lives. And he wants to come into our hearts. He wants to come into our life and start that vision reconstruction for our lives here in the present and into the future as well. So we're going to offer an opportunity if somebody needs to make that decision today to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and start letting him into your heart and help you guard your heart. And we're also getting ready to go into a time of communion. And if you've uh, not been here before, we take communion every week. And part of communion is confession, isn't it? It's confessing that I need the forgiveness of that cross of Jesus dying for me. I need that. And we confess it and we, we own it and we take it to Jesus and we put it at the foot of that cross and recognize it is cleansed, it is taken care of. So I know they're gonna, uh, our worship guys are going to come and, and lead us in a song. And during this time, we want to prepare your hearts for communion. If you have a decision, I'll be right here sitting on these steps. I can try to walk you through that the best I can. If you want to come up here and pray, we can do that as well. But we want to prepare our hearts as we go into a time of communion where we remember a God that wants to restore us. He doesn't want to stay separated from us because of our sin. He wants to bring us together.